You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am Kathy Biasa, your host, and I am a holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. Our show today centers on brain health, developing it, maintaining it, and the key steps that we should and need to take to do so, no matter where we are in life. Our guest is Dr. Tommy Wood. He is a PhD and an assistant professor of pediatrics and neuroscience at the University of Washington, where his research interests include determining how early brain injury impacts brain health across the lifespan, as well as developing easily accessible and equitable methods with which to track health, performance, and longevity in both professional athletes and the general population. He received an undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. Tommy has acted as a performance consultant for professional athletes in a dozen different sports, serves as associate editor of the Wiley Journal Lifestyle Medicine, is a director of the British Society for Lifestyle Medicine, and consults for a number of digital health companies and charities that focus on how lifestyle and the environment can affect long-term health and chronic disease. We have a number of interesting learning points. Uh, I'll name off three here, but we do talk a, a whole bunch about a lot of different things, really interesting, innovative, new stuff that's coming forward. We talk about key building blocks for a healthy brain important connections between the physical body and physical health with cognitive and brain health. And we talk about promising areas of research Dr. Wood is involved with. This is a show for everybody, extremely interesting information. Dr. Wood talks, uh, shares with us a lot of stuff that he's been involved with. I do hope you stick with us. We'll be back, everybody, in just a few minutes to talk with Dr. Tommy Wood. Rising to give in to the 
Continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show has been taped, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on those places. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you. You have a whole bunch of what seemingly could be construed as different interests, you know, uh-huh. studying the, the early impact of brain injury, biohacking, performance and longevity. Is there a common thread that runs through all this or is this you just, you know, being exciting in different areas? <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think that's how it started. Um, I've been very lucky to have uh, mentors and supervisors who were sort of willing to let me play with all the things that I found interesting, um, which included all of those things, working with the athletes, studying the newborn brain, uh, you know, working with uh, people with concussions, uh, neurodegenerative conditions. Um, and then over time, as I did more and more of that, I found what I think is is an important common thread, which is and unsurprisingly, probably to most people, is that you only get one brain, right? You have to have the same brain for your entire lifetime. And normally when we study the brain, we study it in these silos. So there are people who look at the the newborn brain and people who look at the sort of developing uh, child's brain. And there are people who look at 
the brain after concussion and people who look up look at uh, the brain uh, in Alzheimer's disease. However, all of these things are intimately connected and what happens at one stage of life affects later in life. So one thing that I'm in- increasingly interested in and the, the common thread um, that I think I've, you know, I've sort of focused in on is how all those influences affect your brain across the lifespan and then how we can intervene. The, the important thing, most important thing to me being that what's important for the developing brain also seems to be critically important for the aging brain. Um, and those things may be you know, quite easy to change. And, and we have quite a lot of, um, uh, we have a lot of influence over the trajectory of our brain health. Um, using some very, you know, some very simple tools by changing our lifestyle and environment. And that's what I think is empowering and important. And that's what I try and talk to as many people as possible about. Well, you know, I think it might be of some decent value here to talk about, in your estimation, what is a healthy brain? That's a that's a great question. And a healthy brain is essentially um very subjective right mm-hmm. what you think is a healthy brain is very different from what i think is a healthy brain and that's okay that's that's perfectly reasonable and and expected so the simplest way to um describe a healthy brain in my opinion is a brain that supports and allows you to do the things that you want to do uh relative to whatever your baseline is whatever your interests are um, you know, whatever skills you want to learn, uh, whatever things you want to interact with and do, a healthy brain is one that allows you to do that. Um, and uh, sort of from person to person, that may look very different. And we can then find different ways to support different people based on what they would like their brain health to look like. So because there's a different definition for everyone's healthy brain, are there many roads that lead to a healthy brain? Or have you found in research, in your day-to-day workings with people that know there are solid steps that need to be taken in order to get to the destination that we all want? I think the answer is yes and no. So there are probably common buckets that I think are essential to brain health, regardless of life stage. But how each of the things within those buckets um are important for an individual may you know maybe very different so uh, to give you my personal model of brain health um the brain requires three broad things in my mind uh the first is the supply of uh, nutrients and fuel um and you know that can be all the things that we get in the diet that are important for uh for brain health to support your neurons and the other cells in the brain. Uh, it's uh, getting oxygen to the brain, getting glucose or other fuels to the brain. Um, and so you have those nutrients, but then you also need to have functioning blood vessels to get those nutrients to the brain. And that's where the sort of link between, say, uh, art- arterial disease, cardiovascular disease, and neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease exist because you're affecting the blood vessels, you're affecting their ability to get the nutrients to the brain. The next thing the brain needs is stimulation and connection. And my mind, this is probably the most important thing. You need to stimulate the brain if you want it to 
function. Uh, it's very similar to your muscles. If you want your muscles to get bigger and stronger, you need to go to the gym or go running. You need to stimulate them. Um, and the brain is exactly the same because by stimulating the brain, we engage all these important processes related to growth, but also repair and regeneration. Then, yeah. after, sorry, go after, ahead. Yeah. So then, after that, we need to support the processes that uh, allow us to adapt to those things that stimulation we've given the brain. So, sleep being probably the most critical factor. Uh, but, we, but then we want to avoid things that may inhibit that process. So, um, this could be environmental pollution, you know, uh, there are things around heavy metals, chronic infections, um, you know, certainly chronic uh, psychological stress, all of those things can maybe decrease our ability to adapt to a beneficial stimulation to the brain. So those are the three buckets. And then from one person to the next, you know, one may be more important than another based on their environment, their experience and their background. Does genetics play a role in this? Can we beat our genetics? You know, we, epigenetics has become a common term now. Um, and and just from the buckets that you've listed, I guess, other than, you know, having, um, you know, the cardiovascular health may be genetically impacted. Can we bypass any genetic deficiencies we might have by making sure that we're filling these other buckets properly? Largely, I believe yes. And for a number of reasons. The, I guess the simplest way to answer your question is to focus on one specific condition, which uh, probably most people listening to this are interested in, which is Alzheimer's disease or age-related dementia. And then the, the sort of the period of cognitive decline that precedes that. We talk a lot about genetics in this condition. Um, and when Alzheimer's disease was first discovered or coined, um, uh, Dr. Alois Alzheimer was actually describing a patient who had a single genetic mutation that caused early onset rapid uh, decline, early onset Alzheimer's, as we call that. What most people uh, with Alzheimer's disease have is late onset or sporadic Alzheimer's disease, which is not primarily a genetic condition. There are genes that influence risk. So one thing that people may have heard of is uh, the apolipoprotein E or APOE genotype, which uh, some doctors are, are regularly testing now, because if you have the APOE4, there are three types, two, three, and four, and you can have uh, one or two copies of each of those and their combinations. And those who have either one or two copies of APOE4 have an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. However, your genetics, including your APOE genotype, you know, at best estimate, they they dictate maybe 5 to 10% of your overall risk. So yes, they do contribute some risk, um, but there are a number of populations where uh, your APOE genotype doesn't seem to have any effect at all. Um, and they seem to be um, indigenous populations who are living closer to the environment that their ancestors uh, evolved in, like the Bolivian Simene and the Nigerian Yoruba. Um, in those groups, APOE4 is not linked to uh, cognitive decline at all. So that tells us there's an interaction, uh, maybe with other, other genes, of course, but also uh, with the environment. And the more we've studied, you know, the, the research community in general has studied um, Alzheimer's disease and age-related cognitive decline, it really seems like the majority of driven is driven by the environment. And conservative estimates, in my opinion, they're rather conservative. They say that at least 40% 
of Alzheimer's disease can be prevented uh, by mod modifying uh, lifestyle and the environment. And my guess is it's probably more than that. With all this research that you've been doing, you know, focusing really on this area in particular, what has been your biggest surprise, either pleasantly or negatively? <laughs> the, the biggest surprise to me um, and, and and again, it's probably the thing that I've I've focused on uh, the most recently. Uh, and a colleague and I, uh, Dr. Josh Chirkney, wrote, wrote a paper about this. He's he's a board certified neurologist. Um, is the importance of stimulating the brain, which sounds very vague, um, but if we really think about how the brain develops, those inputs are critically important and then they, they sort of transcend across across the lifespan so if you think about the developing child they spend their entire day when they're awake stimulating their developing brain uh trying to walk trying to talk trying to learn social interaction and they continuously fail and they fall over and then they try again and they get a little better and then after they've you know done all that uh sort of brain stimulation, they sleep and they take a lot of time to rest and recover and repair. And that's when we get, you know, consolidation and all those things in the brain that that's the brain adapting to the stimulus that's provided. As we um, get older. Sorry, go ahead. Yep. Oh, no, you, you can. No, no, you continue. I, I thought okay. you were taking a, a break there. <laughs> so, as, as we get older, and this is what's most interesting to me, as we get older, the brain is still able to adapt to new environments, new stimuli, um, but we tell ourselves that that it doesn't. Right? You know, the can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, everybody says, you know, my brain's getting older. I'm just, um, you know, losing my ability to remember things. That's that's normal. You know, I can't learn new skills. And in reality, that's that's not true. That the brain is adaptable uh, at pretty much any stage in life. We just don't give it the opportunity to. Um, and it's largely because as adults, we do the same things again and again and again. They become habits um, and they're no longer this sort of critical stimulus uh, to, to, the, to the brain, um, like learning to drive. You know, learning to drive initially is very difficult, but eventually it becomes so simple that, you know, it's no longer a challenge. Um, and the, we, it's the our working lives uh, are the same. So the most, um, you know, the interesting thing to me and surprising thing to me looking at this is that the brain really isn't this fixed thing that just gets worse over time, which is kind of the story that's told societally. Um, it is always adaptable. Uh, it will respond to stimulus, but we have to give it that stimulus and then we have to give it a chance uh, to rest and recover and repair. So physiologically, you haven't seen a change in the brain. So um, I had a guest on oh, quite a while ago. And they were talking about how memory changes. You know, as a, as a younger person, we are we can hold on to things, and as an older person, we have wisdom. So <laughs> you don't believe that that's the case—that we can continually have a sharp brain, and physiologically, it's changing because we're not giving it the stimuli. I just want to make sure that that's exactly what you're saying. So no, and I, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, I think both of those things are true. So oh, okay. as you get as you get older, your memory does change. Um, and part of it is because 
um, you have more memories, more things to remember. You've had more experiences. So I mean, that's exactly what I lay my hat on there. I don't forget yeah. things. I just have way too much going on. <laughs> and so, so that's part of it. You have more things to remember. So the, 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 the memory retrieval process is different. But equally, um, how we make memories is different because the brain makes memories based on, you know, and, and adapts based on novel stimuli. So the greater your previous experience, the more things the brain will filter out by saying, you know, this isn't novel, this isn't new, I don't need to pay attention to it. So that's where, that's part of the process of wisdom, right? I don't need to worry about that because, you know, I've seen that before, I can, I, I can ignore it. Mm -hmm. However, if we give the brain novel stimuli, it is still capable of making those memories and of changing. So I think both of those things are true. Um, as the brain gets older, the the important point that that I think is worth making is that it's not that the brain is no longer capable of the same things that it's capable of when it when it's younger. Because generally, until sort of the late stages of neurodegenerative conditions, it it really is still adaptable and it can make changes. It can make new memories. Uh, you just need to give it the stimulus to do so. So are we talking about, you know, the things that we've seen, Sudoku and crosswords, or are you talking about living a life differently? Mainly the latter. So, you know, uh, Sudoku is, Sudoku's a great, crosswords are great. Um, however, I, I don't think they sort of fill that gap, um, the, the level of stimulus that maybe the brain requires uh, to, to remain you know, active and functioning at, at, at a high level for a long period of time. There are a number of different strands of evidence that come uh, into this, um, but maybe the most important one uh, is uh, research around retirement. So in multiple population studies, the earlier you retire, the earlier you experience cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because in the modern environment in modern society most of our cognitive stimulus comes through work um however there are a number of protective factors that seem to last you know again across the entire the the entire lifespan so early life level of education is the single most protective uh, factor for alzheimer's disease of course we have to bear in mind that not everybody gets you know access and opportunity to the same level of education but even sort of taking that into account, the more we stimulate the brain early um, as part of you know development, the, that seems to have long-lasting effects. Um, pe people who are, are bilingual or learn multiple languages are also protected. Musicians uh, are protected. So these are complex, often social skills um, that we engage in every day or you know multiple times a week, where we are constantly trying to get better and learning new things. These seem to be the most protective factors in terms of long-term brain health. So why does it seem, or, or is it a, a, an actual fact, that after a given age, that window to learn a new language is significantly closed? I mean, not that it's impossible. Um, many people do it. But it seems so much easier, you know, as a, as a casual observer, to learn mm -hmm. something like a new language at a much earlier age. The... A big part of it uh, is this sort of societal factor and opportunity. Okay. However, you know there are studies that do show that so the the aging or older brain may be slightly slower to develop new skills, but 
on timescales where these things are important, you know, weeks and months and years where you learn new skills, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to matter that much. I think what matters is the opportunity that we're giving our brains. So yeah, it, it takes adults longer to learn a language, but when I uh, was learning languages as a kid, I had the opportunity to be in school in that country where that language is spoken. You know, I'm I'm immersed and I'm forced to learn, as well as you know having uh, sort of the opportunity to rest and recover and not worry about a whole bunch of other things that are going on. So, I think it's less that the brain isn't able to adapt, you know, as much as you need it to later in life. It's that we don't give it the same magnitude and opportunity as we do earlier in life. Situationally, we're not putting ourselves in the same. Well, that's very exactly. positive. We're going to end yeah. the first half on that positive note. This is all just everything good. Uh, everyone will be back in just a couple of minutes here.
We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Dr. Tommy Wood, and we're going to continue along uh, on a positive vein here. Um, We ended off saying that we can really pretty much do anything we want at any age if we put ourselves in front of the right situational paradigm. Um, something that has interested me, uh, and, 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 you know, it's just, I'm just in the infancy of learning about it is the physical body and the mental body and not just talking about, you know, the microbiome and the gut health and that, yes, that's, of course, it's extremely important, but the, the physiology of our body, how does it impact the health of our brain, lean muscle mass, uh, things like that. Is there a connection? I still think we have this disconnect about what's going on above our shoulders as opposed to what's going on below the shoulders. Has your research enlightened you about anything in that space? Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, you're right that it's maybe only in, been in the last 10 years or so where neuroscientists have started to realize that things happen below the neck and they affect what happens uh, above the neck uh, quite critically. And physical activity and, you know, physical or peripheral health are, you know, are directly related to the health of the brain in a number of different ways. Um, and we can sort of think of them as direct and, and indirect. So direct effects are things like, you know, the process of learning motor skills, um, the process of using our muscles, right? They require input from the brain. So learning motor skills, and that could be as a kid, learning to walk or as an adult, you know, learning to skateboard, say, these are, you know, direct inputs into the brain that, re- that require, you know, that, 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 that provide that stimulus that we talked, that we were talking about earlier. Then there are a number of indirect uh, effects. And uh, I think almost every month there's a, a new compound uh, or molecule discovered that, links uh the process of exercise to you know the your overall health longevity and the health of the brain and in general we call these things myokines so the things that are released by muscle tissue that then go out and affect uh, the rest of the body um and you know we used to think that you know muscles just you know filled filled a t-shirt um mm-hmm. But in in reality your 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 skeletal muscle you know the the muscle on the outside of your body are um 
a, what we call a secretory organ. You know, they're affecting the rest of the body. And that happens every time uh, we move. Uh, one that people may have heard of is something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That's something that, you know, directly supports uh, the health and function of neurons. And that's, you know, increased, you know, every time we exercise. And that is one of maybe thousands of molecules uh, that affect the brain. So, two you know broad ways you know that direct stimulus that neuromuscular stimulus the connection from the mind to the muscles and then also the indirect effect of releasing all these things into circulation that then uh, can can benefit uh, the brain as well as the rest of the body it's a two-way street i'm assuming uh, yeah absolutely so um you know you you need to have uh, the brain to uh, stimulate uh, those muscles although there are ways around that and individuals uh, who don't have a direct uh, connection. Um, you know, obviously, you know, people who've had spinal cord injuries, for instance, um, you can still stimulate the muscles externally and get some of those benefits. Um, although, unfortunately, they seem to not be as great as if, you know, the, the brain was was directly talking to those muscles in the way that it might in other people. And I think it's intimated from the conversation, but let's just state it outright. It's never too late to start any of this process, right? No, absolutely not. And there are, you know, very nice studies. Uh, there was a, a a trial called the SMART trial that was done in individuals who, on average, were in their mid seventies. Uh, they had them start either a cognitive uh, training program. They had this sort of like online, um, you know, brain training or a resistance training program. So they were in the gym three times a week for about forty five minutes, um, and those who did the resistance training uh, in particular saw significant improvements in uh, cognitive function as well as they did some MRIs of the brain and saw improvements in sort of connectivity in the brain. So these are people in their 70s lifting weights for the first time, seeing significant benefits both in terms of the structure of the brain as well as the function of the brain. Where would you start first, cognitively or physiologically? I think um, if, I, if I had to pick um, one well, can I cheat and say both and give you a good example of how you can do that? Um, I think we'll see. If, if I, <laughs> <laughs> so if I was going to if I was going to pick one thing that encompasses a lot of the stuff that we, that we talked about, it would be dancing. Um, and actually, there's a lot of um, research on dancing, again, in older individuals. Uh, if you take people and you put them in a dance class um, and uh, you compare that to uh, this sort of a randomized trial, you compare that to those who did like a circuit training in the gym. So the the physical component is the same. But in dancing, there's a coordination component. There's a social component. They saw greater improvements in the dancing group. And that's been done in, in several studies now. So with something like dancing, you're socially interacting, you're, you're uh, physically active, um, and you have this sort of like coordination, motor-based um, skill input that's additional um, sort of additional stimulus for, for the brain. So that kind of thing ticks multiple boxes. And it's a happy thing to do, right? Like, yeah. have we missed that component of our conversation here? I mean, when you said <laughs> dancing, it's like, well, everyone loves to dance. It makes you happy. We didn't touch upon the emotional piece of brain health. Yeah. And uh, again, that's, uh, that's a, a two-way street where um, it's sort of uh, – mental health uh, issues increase the risk of cognitive decline and vice versa. If you have some cognitive decline and that may precipitate um, anxiety uh, or, or depression and they're significant risk factors uh, for one another. And 
you know, there, there are a number of reasons why people may have those conditions. And I'm not saying you can fix it all uh, with dancing, but, you know, uh, we know that physical activity is important. We know that social connection is important. Um, and again, you know, the sort of doing these uh, joyful, skill-based social things, um, you know, maybe you don't like to dance, so you can get, I think you'll get similar things uh, with learning languages or learning musical instruments, because again, they're usually you know, social as well as having this sort of stimulating effect uh, to the brain. You just tick, tick multiple boxes at once. And, you know, within each of those three groups and a bunch of other things, you know, you'll find something that not only is it doing good for your brain and your body, but it's also, you know, a joyful thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting back to more technical-ish sort of things, doctor-ish sort of things, are there <laughs> tests that you you recommend people take uh, blood work signs in the blood work they should be mm-hmm. looking for, or, or do you take an approach um, of more, you know, if things are going well, continue along your path. I know I've seen two, <laughs> you know, two very different types of people and types of practitioners absolutely know everything physiologically, or mm-hmm. if it's not broken, don't worry about it. So, Again, I I prescribe to both of those uh, approaches uh, depending on the individual and the environment. I think that if everything's going well and you feel good and your subjective health is actually a pretty great predictor of long-term health, uh, you feel good, you feel happy, you feel like your health is good, you know, that's actually, you know, a, a big, a big uh, brick, in, brick in that wall of long-term health. Um, and... The things that we can talk about, uh, you know, all those skills or activities that we mentioned, physical activity, you know, I, I think one of the best things that anybody can do is just go for a brisk walk, you know, for 20 or 30 minutes a day. That's going to, again, give a huge stimulus to brain tra- brain and body. Um, I believe almost anybody can do that. Um, these things are generally free and accessible, and I think everybody should hear them and be able to do them. Um I also think that in the context of, you know, a, a well-designed and well-supported healthcare system, we would be able to test for things that we know we can easily intervene with. So you mentioned blood work. Two things, two or three things that I might think about uh, would be uh, testing for a level of something called homocysteine, um, which is related to B vitamin status. And the reason for that is there are direct randomized control studies that show that we can intervene and uh improve or prevent uh, the shrinking of the brain and and cognitive decline uh, in people who are at risk for that. Um, Similarly, um, we might do some simple tests of your metabolic health. And by that, I mean your blood sugar regulation. So your fasting blood sugar or your HbA1c. And and again, because there's very nice studies that show that the worse your blood sugar control. So, you know, from normal blood sugar control to pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes, your rate of decline of cognitive function increases as your blood sugar blood sugar regulation uh worsens and these are things that are very easy to test um any doctor could get and you know we also have a good idea of a number of different interventions that we can use to improve that fair enough now i do want to talk a a bit before we come to the end of the show Uh, i i think it was one of your earlier interests is the impact of trauma you know of early trauma on long-term brain development are you actively doing this still uh, in the pediatric piece of what you do? So the the brain injuries that I study in uh, infants or, or newborns, they're not traumatic 
uh, brain injuries, but they might be, um, you know, they, they still have uh, these components of, of interrupting uh, those, those things that we talked about earlier. So say uh, an issue happens right around birth, the, the brain of the baby is starved of oxygen and, and, and glucose. You know, that's something that, that, that we study um, as well as babies born preterm. And the more preterm you're born, the, the, the higher the likelihood that you'll have some kind of neurodevelopmental uh, impairment. Um, again, what's been most surprising to me, and, you know, I'm a neonatal neuroscientist. I spend the vast majority of my time studying ways to, you know, give therapies or what can we do in the hospital to improve the, the outcomes of these children. But by far the most important thing is the environment that the child uh, goes home to. So, you you know, there are studies that show that a baby's born preterm, they have some, you know, we've done a, a brain scan, they have some kind of injury on, on their brain. If they go home to uh, and you know a high socioeconomic uh, status environment, and so this is mothers with graduate degrees, and a whole bunch of stuff comes with that. Of course, right? It's not just the education of the mother; it's then income and access to um, you know, food and access to uh, education and, and all these other things that are important. If you have an early life brain injury and you go home to that kind of environment, that early brain injury has no effect on your long term. Mm -hmm. Um, trajectory. However, if you go to a deprived environment, it can have a massive impact. And this then tells us about the importance of, you know, an equitable society on uh, the developing brain, because, you know, not everybody gets to go, you get, nobody gets to pick the home that they go home mm -hmm. to. But we know that that home environment can have this huge effect um, on the long, on long-term brain health and function. And that's really down to all those things that we talked about before, you know, nutrition, uh, stimulus, education, support, sleep, absence of chronic stress, uh, discrimination, all those things that we know come in at the societal level. And that's really what has the biggest impact on the developing brain. So you're crossing over into emotional trauma as well. And I yes, guess it's hard to separate it all. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, I guess we, you know, we could pick up multiple threads around uh, emotional trauma and it's not my area of expertise, but, you know, mothers, depending on the support they have, you know, how traumatic is uh, that, you know, having an infant who has some kind of brain injury, some kind of health issue, what support do they have? Um, what kind of trauma, uh, you know, emotional uh, is the infant exposed to based on the environment that they that they go home to? Um, again, huge long-lasting effects, um, and and these are the things uh, that 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 I think have can have this mass, massive massive impact, and and probably more so than than all the stuff that's done in the hospital early on in life. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you're involved with longevity. You're involved with uh, working with athletes. All this stuff. Um, what would you say, you know, as a sort of a closing piece here, if you will, um, what is the actual goal of developing a healthy brain? Is it longevity? Is it adding, you know, numbers on to that age? I'm 100, I'm 101, 102, 103. Is that the point to live longer or is it something else that you're striving for in your research? In, in, in some people, it may be. Uh, for me, that's not the goal. Um it's the difference between years in your life versus life in your years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the latter that I think is critically important and important at a number of different levels. So, you know, people, you know, have these intellectual arguments about, you know, what's the longest a human can live? Is it 120 years as it is approximately now, you know, the, the longest a human has lived versus, you know, some people say, 
humans can live to a thousand years if only we give the right drugs and we tinker with the right things. And, you know, it's an interesting academic argument, but it's not something that I'm you know, directly invested in because I think right now we know the important things that can be done on an individual and societal level to improve the health of everybody across, you know, what is currently a normal lifespan, say 70 or 80 or, or 90 years. And this is incredibly important for the individual, for their family, for their experience. You know, there's this incredible distress um, associated with long-term chronic health conditions. Uh, you know, we, we've talked, you know, people have talked about how Alzheimer's disease may bankrupt healthcare systems, not only because of this huge burden of individuals who have significant cognitive impairment, but then also on their families who have to look after them um, and the stress involved in that. And so you can go from the individual level to the family level to saying, you know, if, if we can uh, put in place these things that maintain people's cognitive function, even if it's only for, you know, another five or 10 years, right? When I'm not saying we can completely prevent all Alzheimer's disease, mm -hmm. but, it, you know, even if we can decrease the total period of time when people are afflicted by these conditions, you know, it has a huge benefit to that individual, but also, you know, society, healthcare systems that are going to have to pay uh, for this. And, you know, but I, I think that's kind of, you know, decreasing the burden on healthcare uh in general is also going to be an important impact if we can you know sort of scale these things and 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 implement them in as many people as possible i don't think there's a better way to live life than to pack in all the happiness and functionality <laughs> that you can and no matter what age you check out you check out peacefully Absolutely. um you know i think i know that's my goal um whatever age uh, i've i've i expire at i hope just to wake up dead i mean i think happy live a long life maybe that's other people's goals but i totally agree with you you want to live a productive functional happy life no matter what the term um what is the most promising area of research that you are involved with now that you can share with us i think the things that i'm most interested in, in this uh, arena is trying to find ways to support people to implement some of these things. Uh, we know that knowledge does not change behavior. And for several years, you know, I'd say, well, if only if I gave people better information, then all these things would change. And of course, that's that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, and so many know, aspects of life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we know that a lot of this, so uh, you know, a big part of it is, is societally driven. What do people have access and opportunity to, to do? The part of it is also individual behavior and behavior change, and that's um, you know I think the that's the next frontier of uh, digital health and you know sort of scaled uh, remote healthcare systems is helping people to make small changes that compound over time. So small improvements in diet or small improvements in physical activity, um, and you know there's a, a huge you know huge branches of psychology that go into that i work with some digital health companies that are trying to automate some of these processes so that anybody can get access to them i think that's important um but also you know part of that is acknowledging that you don't have to do everything all at once and you know you know you you might listen to somebody like me and think well, I've got to do all this stuff with my diet and my physical activity and my sleep, and I've got to learn a new skill. Um, you know, that's that can be very stressful thinking about doing all those things. Mm -hmm. But we also know that they they interact. So if you do a little bit of one and a little bit of another, you know, these can have huge benefits. So, you know, 
go out and you know, doing a, a 20 minute walk during the day outside in nature that's, that can ma- hugely impact all these other areas of your life because uh, we know that if you change one thing you're more likely to change another thing so i think we also have to be kind to ourselves and acknowledge that we're often doing the best that we can um and just these small changes can have uh, big impacts um and you know the, the ways that we can support people in doing that and have that available to everybody that's what i'm most excited about and you know the probably a few years uh, ahead from being able to really do that but sort of working on that in the background well it's impressive because i i do believe um you know working in the space that i work in and, and working with clients i do believe there is this this idea i don't know if it's because of the internet i don't know if it's because it's it's a lot of this is you know new information coming that you either have to do it all there's no point mm-hmm. and i think you know you you get this attitude that why should i bother and if you can with your research and um, other biohacks that you're introducing into the world tell people and show people and give them you know actionable steps little bits at a time i think that could be the biggest impact on health and the healthcare system is to just get people going in the right direction. They don't have to arrive at a destination all at once, but just start moving towards it. So I think it's a it's it's great and it's great to have someone like you, you know, leading the charge for this. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I have like a million other questions to ask, but unfortunately, time uh, eludes us. But thank you, uh, Tommy, so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was a huge amount of fun. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.